Nerdy City flipped our world upside down and made things stranger with their nostalgic suburban horror game, Remembrance. Then, they made our skin crawl, with a game based on the videos so gross and disturbing, they were termed nasty with their horrifying tabletop, RPG Nasty. Now they send us back to the Saturday morning cartoons and brightly painted plastic toys we remember from our childhood that were more than met the eye. Commandrels, the first installment of the Radical Shadows universe, puts you in the driver's seat of your very own transforming robot. With a Kickstarter launching in the beginning of August, you can live out the battles between the heroic Symbatrons and the dastardly Nemesites in a world transformed. To be part of this Kickstarter and contribute, please search for Commandroids on Kickstarter or visit NerdyCity.com for more information. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Get down, down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Are you ready to get down with some D&D? I know I am. And I am joined as I am always joined by the magnificent, marvelous, and melted... Maybe even monumental, Mad Wizard Merwin. Hey, buddy, what's going on? I'm I'm particularly salty today, Chris. We've had lots of drama and some deaths in our family, and now I've come back and I'm ready to get back to work, and and so I don't have much patience today for any tomfoolery. So if I get a little well, if I get a little uppity, uh, that's why. Why don't we get right to it then? Since All right. No patience for tomfoolery. It's... I will. I will disengage from the tomfoolery. <laughs> Your tomfoolery Rus- is fine. Oh, okay. Well, then the the Avengers Endgame writers and you know other amazing Marvel movies, the Russo brothers, they talked about playing D and D endlessly on their Reddit AMA. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. This morning, I was just scrolling through Twitter and I saw people quoting them at their Reddit AMA. Someone asked what they do or what they did right after. Uh, production ended on Avengers Endgame and they said that they both went on family vacations with their separate families but when they returned they played Lost Mind of Fandelver again like they do endlessly so it sounds like that they play D&D quite a bit and it sounds like uh, Lost Minds of Fandelver is something that they've gone back to several times uh, to play I thought that was just pretty pretty cool it is pretty cool also a really good adventure so you know yeah, I wonder if they will pick up the new uh, Essentials box set and, and play a different uh, game in Fandolin. Oh, I wonder who's directing the new D&D movie. Yeah, I've heard some news about that, too, but I wasn't ready to put that up yet. I'm just saying, like, you know, the Russo brothers like D&D. They do. Just saying. And they've been known to direct big-budget movies. That's that's true. Like I just just throwing that out there. Yep. I mean, I have a, this is this is not a rumor or anything like that. We're just you know pontificating. Sure. Um, tell me about AL season nine stuff. So for the last couple of seasons, they've changed up the rules, trying to fine tune things and meet expectations not just of players but of you know wizards and of themselves and of new players. And so when season nine. Um, season nine hasn't launched yet, but it's it's coming around, and they've put up new rules about seasonality. Where we've talked about that before, where if you create a character specifically for this season, they're good. If you use characters from previous seasons, you don't get uh, unlocks or story awards. Not a big deal, but of course, people being people, whined and gnashed their teeth about it, uh, like it's the only thing going on in the world. So uh, they've put out new rules they've listened to people's feedback and they even went ahead and did a survey about what you know players look for most in their adventures league play you know what's the most important thing to you is it magic items is it portability of character these sorts of questions that allowed them to go back and and revise their rules. So right now they are using their blog on um, dndadventuresleague.org website to talk about ch- these rules changes, what they're thinking of doing. You know, and even as they put them out and get feedback, they're continuing to tweak the rules because they are in fact listening to the players, uh, despite what you might see if you 
happened to end up on the Facebook uh, AL group, and it sounds like the sky is falling. Um, so it's still up in the air, but starting to come into focus. The season itself launches in September uh, when the Baldur's Gate Descent into Avernus book releases. So if you're an AL player, uh, keep an eye on that. It's not going to be relevant for another few weeks uh, in terms of you know what the actual new rules for the new season is going to be, but they are continuing to tweak those. You know, I get that a lot of people are, are um, whatever about it, right? Like it's probably a small vocal minority, I would imagine, that mm -hmm. are that are saying the things that they need to say. But it's very nice, I think, that they are using the AL blog to talk about all this stuff and being very transparent and public with it. Like I think that's a good policy to have. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think it's good. Um, they, God bless them because their patience is so. Yeah, my patience, I think, is pretty high. And they are just rolling with all this stuff. And so, you know, the AL admins are doing an, an incredible job of juggling, you know, the needs of Wizards of the Coast, the needs of the players, and, and you know, all of that, uh, all of that stuff to to keep the uh, program running. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a tricky program to run, especially after nine seasons, right? Yeah, I, you have to. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. I, I was gonna say because you have to. Um, cater to a bunch of different crowds at this point the people who have been playing for forever the people who are, are potentially new and new to the hobby and want to want to play and get in and not feel like they're being overwhelmed by everything else and uh you know people who are serious and casual yeah and it's funny because since we're delving into this uh this is the first time that i've been working on and you know looking at or working with a, an organized play campaign where the sales of the base game are continuing to rise rather than falling. And so that changes the way that the Adventures League needs to look at its own role, right? If it's going to be a gateway for new players, it needs to change with with the game. It I needs agree. to change with the market. And so we're all, we always get into this area where the invested players are invested because they like the rules and new players are not being served by the rules for the adventures league. So, you know, where, where this conflict is, there needs to be a resolution. And I would have just scrapped the whole thing and started over long ago. Um, and come up with new rules to slow down, the slow down the the issues that are causing new players to come to an adventures league game and be turned off right away because of the the players and their characters that are already invested um, so it's you know it's always got to be that and the more people complain all it is is reinforcing why new players don't want anything to do with them because of that attitude they have Mm -hmm. uh, I don't of, disagree with you. Yeah, instead of being accepting and and ready for change and ready to do new things and bring in new people, it's just all about them and all about their characters and all about their big bad magic items and you know, it's 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 off-putting and it's just reinforcing this negativity that that the Adventures League admins are trying to quelch and and bring up uh, to a level where new players can get involved. Yeah, I uh, I uh, I tend to hang out with a lot of people who don't play D anD D, and a lot of people who do to play D anD D. And I've always had the impression, for the most part, that um, this iteration of the uh, the Adventurers League and the people playing it have been far more welcoming, and it's been a far more open experience. I'm a little disappointed to hear that there's so many people who are trying to be exclusionary because they're not really concerned with the game as a whole, but just concerned with themselves, which, you know, I get the self-centered thing, like it happens sometimes, but um, if you're one of those people, maybe you should think about making the game a more accepting and open place. Think right. about just being radically accepting. Right, and, and understand that, that you are being this way, right? Most people don't even realize they're doing it. They're just so tunnel vision on what they want and what their needs are that they don't even understand how selfish they're being and how negative they're being to to what could be a very inclusionary and very um, bountiful gate for new players into the game. Yeah. it's It doesn't take very many people to ruin a thing for everybody else, too. So Yep. And it's, it's also the Internet, so there's that. 
Yeah, and but like I said, it's probably a very vocal minority that are that are causing these problems. I would imagine. It's pretty true. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, all you folks out there who are being awesome ambassadors, keep being awesome ambassadors. All you folks out there that are not necessarily being awesome ambassadors, maybe reevaluate. Please, and thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about being paid to run games, pa- paid to DM, and why it's such a controversy. Yeah, so this article came out a while ago. Uh, it did. I, re- I read it a while ago. In, in, in Bloomberg, <laughs> um, about people who are being paid to DM. Which is pretty cool, if you ask me. Yep. So they, they interviewed a couple people. One of them, his last name was Chulik, and he works, I believe, in Los Angeles, where he has a different job. He has a full-time job, but he also, on the side, runs D&D games for money. So, yeah, this is totally his side hustle. Yep. So, for example, you can hire him to run an individual beginner campaign for about $300 for for you know four to six players. Uh, or if you want to pay more, he will come to your office and run a D&D team-building activity uh, for $500. Uh, he runs a full studio so he can stream games that he runs on Twitch. Uh, you know, there's there's all different sorts of things that that he does. Um, and for that fee, you get very customized experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, so he will make you know he will make terrain or he will make little props that you can use. He talked about making potions that he put in little flasks or just like you know water and some food coloring and some flavoring. So if you'd use the potion, you actually drink the potion, and you know. So it's kind of a cool uh, live action experience. Yeah, and as it says in the article, it's not necessary for the adventure, but it's it just adds that bit more depth, especially if you're paying for it. Yeah, and you know, I I don't see anything surprising in this because for the last twenty years, I've been heavily involved in the industry, and you know, I know that a great experience is worth a lot of money. I've seen people at conventions pay a good chunk of change to get a, a great, long, fun experience. Mm-hmm. But there there seems to be, again, Internet, this this group of people who you know, are outraged that someone would charge money to, to DM. I have no idea why people are outraged by that. It right. doesn't make any sense to me. Right. If there is a market for it, then make your money. I, I agree. Get, that, give, I mean, that's pretty much it, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, get, give, do your thing, right? Do the thing that you do, DM, to the best of your ability, and get compensated for it the way that you can. It's mm-hmm. it's a lot of work to DM. And just because you DM for free, and you're you know the best DM ever, whatever, and your players have the best time ever, doesn't mean that other people can't do it. Yeah, can, can we uh, can we break down this first? Can we break this down for a second? I'd love why, to. Uh, why I think it's cool, like yeah. um, so this this gentleman, uh, Chaluik, um, he is customizing experiences for beginning groups. Like he he's actually crafting things for them so that they can introduce them to play. He is taking time uh, out of his. He's taking time to actually craft props and craft like you know um, a process to uh, create a team-building activity or to just create a an adventure that is customized for the people who are paying for it. Mm-hmm. This is time outside of the normal idea of what we consider prep. Um, this is this is the kind of stuff... I mean, if you can make money off of just showing up with your prep and running your game for people, that's awesome, too, because, you know, it's a capitalist society. If you can make money off of a service, great. But from what it sounds like this gentleman's doing, it's, um, it's entertaining, it's engaging, it's a step above what... Um, the average game master is doing or dungeon master is doing at their table. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't have, I think if you want to sell your services, that's one of the ways that you go and you sell your services. Like, yeah, a lot of us can run games, but there is a step up above that. Sure. And uh, I mean, yeah. And if you do this as kind of a corporate team building uh, activity, I have seen a lot of companies pay a lot more money for a lot worse activities. I yeah, absolutely. Right? You know, I've I've seen speakers brought in to address things that were just terrible, you know, address groups, address companies that people were like, "Why did we just spend $10,000, you know, for an hour to listen to that?" So, I can't think of a better team building activity than D and D. Right? It's engaging. It helps people work together. There's problem solving involved. Uh, it's entertaining. 
So it requires teamwork. Oh yeah, all of those things. I think I think it's wonderful. I'd love to see you know I'd love to see this spread more, and you, you see more game clubs in schools being formed mm-hmm. um, to uh, to bring more people together to socialize rather than sit in front of a TV or a screen or other sorts of activities that separate you. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I just I think it's incredible. I just don't understand why people would be outraged by this. Like, I mean, of course, people are just going to be outraged by anything these right. days. It's just the way that the world works. Um, I don't think this is one of those things that people should necessarily be outraged about. It is just, if you can come up with a business model that functions and people are willing to pay you for it, mm-hmm. then you've then you've figured out a way to turn your hobby into some amount of money making. Yep. And and the other thing from the article, they talked about some numbers, which I thought we should share. Yeah, um, do it. Th- they talked to Nathan Stewart um, at Wizards, who said that sales of the fifth edition of the game, which published, which was published in 2014, were up 41 percent in 2017 from the year before, and up another 52 percent in 2018, making it the biggest sales year yet. So even though yeah. you know it's not like you know he, he talked about talked about it in terms of esports, where we're we're not to the point of like Overwatch yet. Mm-hmm. But in 2017, nine million people watched other people play D and D on Twitch. Yeah, and we don't. That's 2017. That's not even the 2018 numbers, which I imagine are higher. Exactly. So you you know you get that sort of growth and that sort of demand. Now there is an audience out there. Not not all nine thousand or all, <laughs> nine thousand. Not all nine million of those people are playing D and D. Right? They're watching, but they're they're a market. They're an easily reachable market uh, that we need to find ways as creators of D&D or just as fans of D&D to tap into mm-hmm. and make the, the hobby that much richer and give us that many more opportunities to play, to see the game in new ways. Uh, and so, you know, that's why all of this, getting paid to DM, the Adventures League, all of these things are part of one big uh, paradigm that needs to expand to 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 reach into those markets. Yeah, absolutely. I can I completely agree. Uh, I, I can't. I, I'm very much enjoying watching it grow and stuff. And I know. Uh, and I'm about to enter some of this myself because we're start, we're like there's going to be a, a larger misdirected Mark Twitch channel, and a, there's going to be a couple of streaming like game shows on there. Mm-hmm. So you cool. know, it'll, it'll be fun to see how that all plays out. Yep. One of them is going to be a D and D show. Sweet. At least it's going to be playing D&D pretty regularly. I mm-hmm. mean, it might switch between that and another game over the course of time, but it's going to be playing D&D pretty, uh, fairly often. Sweet. So uh, let's move on to the next thing. What's Project Raptor, Sean? So it was announced on Keith-Baker.com that uh, Keith Baker, of course, being the one of the creators of the Eberron campaign in D&D, uh, he is announcing that he will be working on a brand new Eberron source book, PDF and print on demand for the DM skill. Uh, it will expand on Eberron in areas that only quote unquote, only Keith will be able to. So it sounds like they're going to be talking about things that aren't going to be covered in the new Eberron hardcover that is supposedly coming out sometime in 2019. Um, this book is going to be over 160 pages, slated for a 2019 release. Uh, lots of art, a uh, dedicated team of professionals for layout, editing, project management, and so on. But he was very clear in this announcement that Project Raptor is not an official source book. Um, the Wayfinder's Guide to Eberron, which was released on the DMs Guild, uh, was produced by Wizards, even though Keith worked on it. So that's that is quote unquote official wizards uh, material, but this will not be. It is it is something that he is putting up on the DMs Guild like anyone else could uh, in Eberron. But since it's Keith, you know people will be paying extra close attention. I'm so excited about this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it, this is this is the original visionary for the setting. So you know, right? I mean, all of us who know how the setting was created, like it was a ten page document, then a hundred page document from the from the um. The contest uh, a while ago in 2009, I think, mm-hmm. uh, if I'm doing that right. But then it got, you know, 
taken into development and a whole bunch of different people helped to develop Eberron. But this is a, I imagine this book will have a lot of what Keith's original vision for the, the setting was in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like, I know a lot of that stuff is in there, but this is like him, right? His words, sure. his writings. Yep. So it'll, it'll be, be very, yeah, it'll be very interesting to see, um, you know, to see that, especially if you're a big Eberron aficionado and you, you want to see Keith's vision of it. Um, it will be there. Project Raptor. You can check it out on Keith's website. So cool. So cool. Yep. Uh, so you have a convention schedule for the rest of the year, for the yeah. rest of 2019. You want to let us know about it? Like, I do. Where, where can we find Sean Merwin out in the wild? Yeah. The only reason I'm doing this is because I've been getting a lot of questions about, hey, where are you going to be? When when, when can, I, can we play a game? So I just wanted to get this out there. Um, I will be at PAX West, which is the end of August to the beginning of September. Uh, I'm doing a panel with Teos and uh, who, oh boy, a bunch of people about working on creating games with using other people's intellectual property. Uh, so that will be Friday, August 30th at 4.30 in the Sandworm Theater. Um, there is also going to be a an Acquisitions Incorporated book signing that we just um, decided to do. So that will be uh, Saturday at from 4 to 7, and I'm not sure of the location yet. So, you know, if you have your Acquisitions Incorporated book and you want to get it signed by all the artists and all of the Acquisitions Incorporated players and the people that did the writing on the book and the people that did the editing on the book, we'll hopefully all be there in one location to do a signing. Uh, I will be at Crucible. In Orlando, Florida, October 11th through 13th. I'll be there alongside Travis Woodall running Adventurers League content. Uh, I will be at Gamehole Con from October 31st to November 3rd. I'm going to be on three panels talking about content creation, adventure design, um, creating your own world, uh, publishing your own adventures, things like that. And uh, plus, I'll be running games. There are premieres of not only new games, but new campaigns that I'll be involved in. So that will be cool. Mm. And, you know, Game Hole a great event. So if you can get there, I'd love to see you. And last but not least, I will be at PAX Unplugged December 6th through 8th in Philadelphia. Uh, it's too soon to talk about what I'll be doing there, but hopefully we will have some pretty exciting things to to do and talk about when that rolls around. Very cool. Sounds cool. I'm not doing anything for the rest of the year. I'm staying home. Hey, man, staying home is also a good thing sometimes. Uh, cool. So that's that's the, your convention schedule for the rest of the year. I mean, I might sneak out to a convention or two between now and the end of the year, but probably not. We'll see. All right. Well, I guess we should move on to our main topic for the day, which, you know, it's taken us a while to get there. But <laughs> we still got 20 minutes to, to do this. Yep. Plenty of time. Uh, we're going to complete... The challenges, resolutions, and consequences topic that we started last time. Yep. So this is part 10 of our Designing Adventures series, uh, which, you know, apparently Misdirected Mark Productions has turned into a design uh, podcast network because every one of our podcasts seems to be talking about designing things these days. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you talk about what you know, and right now that's what we know, right? Yeah, all, all of us just design games, so, you know. Let's get back into it. Last time we covered uh, Monsters and Traps. Yep. And today we're going to cover hazards, obstacles, puzzles, and character choices. And the point of this is not to talk about like the challenges themselves, but like the resolution of the types of challenges. A little bit about the challenges and the, the resolutions and consequences that can occur from these challenges. Right. One of the biggest mistakes I see designers make, including myself, is that we create these encounters. We create these challenges. And we really don't think through either the mechanical or the story um, resolutions or consequences before we move on so this whole thing is talking about what you should keep in mind as you create your challenges in terms of those resolutions and those consequences of the challenges for the player characters either narratively or mechanically mm -hmm. or both exactly so, so let's get into hazards yes yeah. let's so hazards are a lot like traps in my opinion um Sometimes they're just an ongoing effect that has to be dealt with or avoided, or could be utilized in some other way. Uh, for instance, like a room of gas, 
you know, um, a steam geyser that goes off at random intervals, a river of lava, or just a fast-moving river. Those are all kinds of hazards. Um, I find that hazards are, are generally known, but they can be sometimes unknown. Um, and sprung traps can also become hazards. Sure. So uh, does that seem seem reasonable? Yes. Yep. So So as you're creating these, again, as we've been talking about, think about resolutions, ways that the characters are going to deal with those, and then the consequences of those various choices that the characters make. Mm-hmm. So, okay, go ahead. Uh, no, go ahead, continue. Okay. So the the important thing to remember with hazards is, as Chris said, they are usually known or they quickly become known. Mm-hmm. Like you could trigger them, but usually there's some sort of uh, clue that goes along with that before you trigger them. For instance, like a uh, like an avalanche, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Like that's a hazard, yep. in my opinion. Yep. So so as you're writing, the first thing you want to do is figure out is it known or unknown, and if mm-hmm. it is unknown, what are the the ways to make it known? Is mm-hmm. it going to be an investigation? Is it going to be a perception check? Um, is it just going to be the first thing that happens is the hazard is triggered because of something that the the characters have no control over, like an enemy runs into the room and the hazard um, is becomes known. So, you know, what what are the kind of like a trap, right? What are the ways to find it? Yeah, um, and uh, traps tend to be intentional. Hazards aren't. That's I think that's very an important true. thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hazards are, are naturally occurring. So it's a thing to think about when you're crafting your story and thinking about the the resolutions and consequences because that means your your enemies usually don't know about them either. Or if they do, they've just left them alone. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, they can be triggered by un, unaware player characters. Yep. And so the so you have the hazard, and now we need to think about resolutions and consequences. Uh, so the we, two biggest... Yeah. Uh, top, the two biggest categories, I think, for a hazard are um, similar to traps. They're either going to harm you or they're going to divert you. Mm-hmm. They can also stall you. That, w- that would be another thing that I would say, right? Right. Because time is important. And so for all of those things, right, diversion, harming, or stalling, what are then the consequences if the characters do not overcome that hazard? Um, oh, so harming, it's it, they're, you're going to lose hit points probably, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, diverting you means you have to find another way, so you could probably you'll probably lose time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also the thing for uh, was the third one I said I forgot. Uh, t- slowing, slowing, yeah. Also time, like those seem to be the, the the big categories that I can think of. Or whereas it's usually you lose hit points or you lose time. Right. So if you're losing time, what are some of the consequences that you as the game designer? can put into an adventure that makes that consequence real either in terms of mechanics or in terms of the narrative. Oh, here you go. Um, I, I can think of a couple off, off the top of my head. You ready? Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. So uh, th- if you were using random encounters, like a random encounter table, that means mm-hmm. you could have one or more random encounters be tacked on to whatever you're doing because that used to be the thing about exploring dungeons. It was a push-or-luck scenario, right? Mm-hmm. The more you went in, the more random encounters you had to deal with on the way in and on the way out. So that's that's a that's a thing to think about. Um, if your adventure has a timer on it, like the bad the adversaries are doing something, and there's like a timer in the background counting down, then that timer advances faster, mm-hmm. or it advances because you're not there yet, and sure. bad things could happen from that. Let's let's take a quick aside here and talk about one of the most powerful tools that you as a DM or as a designer have, and that is a simple die on the table that changes numbers to show the passage of time. Mm-hmm. That's a really good way right. to uh, increase tension yep. at the table. So if you have a, a, say you have a 12-sided die, and you start counting down throughout the adventure, you start at 12, and after an hour you go to 11, and then you go to 10. An hour in-game, I mean, not real-time. Mm-hmm. Um, that that motivates players like you would not believe. Mm-hmm. However, it also makes the yeah. short rest and the long rest very interesting. Exactly. However, if there are no consequences to that, it loses its power quickly. 
But if there are consequences, and again, consequences can just be narrative. They don't necessarily have to be mechanical. Um, you know, you go from 12 to 11. You just move it. Nothing happens. You just go from 11 to 10. Nothing happens. Players might start to get complacent. Then when it goes from 10 to 9, then you say the mountain that you're in begins to shake. Now you have put a slight and narrative consequence but it's there. It's in their minds, and they know that something is happening because time is passing and that die is counting down. And you can use that also as a mechanical impetus, too, if you want to at some point, because then you can have, as that die is moving down, um, you can have encounters where, like, you have a, you have a thing in the encounter, like, well, if, if the D6, if the D12 is at 6... This is a new thing that happens in the encounter or is already in the room when you walk in. Sure. So like um if you get if you get to 6, you get to this room and there's already 6 in the die, yep. then there's another like shaking in the mountain yep. and there's like some crumbled um stone passageway that's now open, but behind that stone passageway um some terrible monster comes out of it during yep. the encounter this time or is already out there eating the things that were in the room. Yep. So, so like Chris said, mechanically it's changing because of this hazard has slowed you down. So there are, there are mechanical game consequences. You just want to make sure as the, as the writer, as the DM, uh, you want to tie that. You want to make sure that they realize that, that because the reason that these three extra spiders are in the room is because time has passed, the mountain has shaken enough that it's opened this passage. So as you announce the extra three spiders in the room, then you turn the die at the same time to to make that connection. Mm-hmm. There's a thing on our list that we didn't put in there, which we mm-hmm. should have, which is time. Time is actually a challenge. Right. Right, because we have monsters, traps, hazards, obstacles, puzzles, and character choices, but we didn't put time in there, and time should totally be on the list. Yes. Yeah, I I mean, I think we can do it the way we're doing it now. Mm-hmm. Um, be, time isn't necessarily a challenge, but time is a consequence. Um, and it's less a consequence with monsters, although it, it can be. Um, but it's more in these, these things we're talking about now, these hazards, these obstacles, where the consequence of not easily moving past them is time. Mm-hmm. So I think you're absolutely right that time will become a bigger factor in all of the uh, resolutions and consequences that we're, we'll talk about from here on out through challenges. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's move on to obstacles. Mm-hmm. So cha- a lot of the stuff that we're talking about are obstacles in some way, shape, or form, but they're fairly more specific to D&D, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. Like hazards, traps, and monsters are very D&D-centric. Yep. Um. Obstacles are sort of the generalized version of this. Like these are things that you need to deal with to move the st- uh, forward in the in the story or in the adventure. And to me, obstacles tend to create opportunities for the characters to create story. Um, I often assume an obstacle will probably be overcome, but how the PCs overcome it will impact the game moving forward in some way. That is usually how I how I view obstacles when I'm designing them. Okay. Uh, can I give you some examples? I would love so to that, hear some examples. Yeah, sure. So um, a gap in a mountain trail that you need to get across to continue, that's that's an obstacle. Um, a town guard who doesn't seem to want to let people through the gate, that is an obstacle. Mm-hmm. Um, a fire that's sprung up in the building you're fighting in that's keeping you from the exit. Uh, a villain who has information that requires that you require to move on to stop their plot. Mm-hmm. Or you're on an airship and it's losing its elemental binding, which would be bad for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. So those are all obstacles to me. Sure. Yeah, I think and, what you've described, some of these obstacles are very, very specific. Mm-hmm. You know, like the the fire that you have to get past. That is a very small but significant obstacle. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, there you could also have a large obstacle like, you know, a mountain in your way that you can either, you know, go over, which will be faster, save you time, but be dangerous, or go around so you're avoiding um, the danger, but you're adding time. Yes. Yep. So, like, that's the thing about obstacles. They're very broad. They have a, a, a bunch of different applications. Um, and I tried to cite a bunch of different examples that would show the, the variety that you can drop in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, in dealing with obstacles, there's there's kind of a couple of ways that I sort of think about the design of them. Um, 
a lot of times I will just kind of leave them there without a lot of answers if I'm just writing for myself. Because mm-hmm. uh, then I'll just leave it up to the player characters to figure it out. But uh, And I'm going to assume that they're going to cost resources in some way, shape, or form. Because that's going to let the players be more inventive. I mean, we have spells for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. And other other gear. Um, if you're looking to have a role assigned to it, what I tend to do is uh, assign some, some difficulty check levels. Something for like easy, medium, and hard. Mm-hmm. And if the characters attempt something that could work to overcome the obstacle, then you can use those as sort of your guideline or like okay. a benchmark for making rolls. So, like, if I have a DC 12, a DC uh, 16, and a DC 20, mm-hmm. right? And they say something that seems like, well, that seems about about average, in my opinion, as a game master, then I will say that's a DC 16 roll. Okay. But if it sounds like, wow, that's really easy, then I'll say that's a, but it's not automatic, then it's a DC 12. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the resources just make it so that they get they get around it, right? Like, they, well, they cast a spell, they used a spell slot, they get they get around it. They right. they spent some of their mechanical resource. Yep, they cast mass fly to get over the chasm. Yeah, that's okay. That's, there you go. Yeah, I mean they they just use one of their spell slots. Yep. So. Okay. Oh, uh, that's how I think about obstacles. Do you have uh, what would you like to add to that? Uh, the only thing I would like to add is, the, you know, this is the area where, um, where you really have to think things through consequence-wise and resolution-wise because you don't want to put up an obstacle that completely halts the game. Oh, you can't get, you know, past the stuck door kind of situation. Well, you can't get to the rest of the dungeon. You want to be careful putting in those sorts of scenarios. Um, Always give an option to continue, but the consequences for those other options can be you know as dire as you want them to be as long as it's reasonable a reasonable way to continue and reasonable so it doesn't just completely wipe out the party yeah that absolutely uh huh uh huh uh by the way designers out there uh be it for your home game or for uh you know published re- adventures never write a block into your adventure that's a terrible idea Yep. If if you need to go that way, like mm-hmm. if that is part of the like, if that is an important next step to your adventure, even your dungeon or whatever, don't put a block in there. If you have, if if there's ever, I mean, I think we've said it before. I think we've said it probably a hundred times on on the variety of shows that we're all on and and interviews that we've all been on or whatever panels. Yep. Pick it, pick a thing. <laughs> uh, if if there's ever a situation where you need a die roll to succeed to move past it, then don't do that. Right. A die roll being the only way to move past it. Correct, yes. And, again, you can make it an obstacle so that they have to take another path. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that, always leave that other path. If it stops the adventure, don't do that. The only way that I would see that happening, and, again, this isn't isn't a block situation, but it comes very close, is if you've created a, a scenario where the player's needed something to continue and they either recklessly uh, recklessly destroyed the object that they needed or they recklessly refused to get the information that they needed knowing that they would need it but just continued on anyway that's where it's okay to put up a block but they always have that path to go back and get the thing they need to continue. You know, go back and get the item, the magical key that they need to dope at the store. Or, you know, to get the information to find the trail through this mountain to the next city where their their quest leads them. Uh, so it's okay to put up a very stiff obstacle, but there is a path that they have leading back to go forward again. You just don't want to do that too much because then players might get frustrated. But for me, if it's something that's obvious that they just refuse to do out of stubbornness or or a lack of caring, then that obstacle helps reinforce the kind of play that you as the writer or the DM are encouraging to think things through before you just rush forward. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Like, I think that's a... I've seen that design in a lot of places too, right? Like, mm-hmm. um... 
uh, one of the more classic ones, if I remember correctly, is in some of the Pathfinder adventure paths. Like every once in a while in adventure, you see that. Like you get to this part of a dungeon and then you can't go past it because you don't have the thing. Right. And you should probably go back and get the thing from the person that yeah. uh, has been hinted at a few times. Yep. And, and that's also just a way to to keep people from going into things that they couldn't handle, obviously. Um, it's true. But again, that that's not an obstacle that stops completely that's just rerouting someone to the area that they need to be at either mechanically or story-wise before they should continue mm-hmm. absolutely yeah uh let's talk about puzzles let's so just in general we've talked about puzzles many many times again pick pick a panel pick a show uh, pick a pick an interview pick a blog we've talked about puzzles um many players love puzzles many players when they see a puzzle hit the table their eyes light up because they love puzzles but there are also many that despise them and as soon as the puzzle hits the table they leave the room and say let me know when you're done i'm one of them yeah and so uh some people dislike puzzles because they're not challenging the character they're something that the player does that's why i don't like them yeah and there are ways to design around that, but then it really just turns into a set of roles for your character. You know, make an intelligence check 42 times. So, you know, before you do a puzzle, know your audience if you know your players, or at least, at the very least, make the puzzle something that is very. Um, tied into the story that you're telling. Um, the puzzle shouldn't be here, do this crossword puzzle just because I want you to do a crossword puzzle. Make it fit into the situation that the players are in that makes them use the tools that, that are at hand. You know, Make it be something that really, as the character, they would know about, even if it's them as the player solving it. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, um, like any other encounter type, when puzzles are poorly done, um, they're just a pass-fail thing. Oh, you did the puzzle, you go forward. Oh, you failed the puzzle, you failed. Rather than doing that, make the puzzle a nuanced and multi-layered thing in terms of resolution and consequences. That said, here's how I like to do puzzles. The characters are going to succeed at the puzzle somehow. That is a given. Mm-hmm. However, what is at stake is how well they succeed, how quickly they succeed, and then there are consequences based on various levels of resolution. So if I give them a puzzle, there's a mural up on the wall with pictures that have something to do with the adventure that they're on. And there are several gemstones lying on the floor and several holes where these gemstones will fit within the mural. They're going to figure it out that the gemstones of certain colors go into certain spots in the mural based on the backstory of this whole quest that they're on. So A, they should know right away if they're paying attention that... Their quest and this mural are tied, and these gemstones will fit into the overall story in some way. If they figure it out right away, they get a bonus Mm -hmm. going forward. If it takes them a while, or if they need to make uh, skill checks, or ability checks, or anything else, they will succeed, but they won't get the bonuses. Um. Write in some way where there are clues around that you can point to. And if they end up using every single clue that is in the in the adventure, then they succeed. But rather than a bonus or rather than no bonus, they get penalties mechanically in the next encounter. Um, there are extra villains. They have, um, they're late, so they have uh, disadvantage on the initiative check. You know, mm-hmm. something small that either rewards or penalizes them for their acuity with the puzzle. 
Do you, do you have anything to add, Chris? I do. Um, I, I like everything that you're saying. I, that's actually how I prefer to design puzzles when I am designing puzzles, um, if I'm going to use them. I, I like to... So, for me, puzzles are such a a meta thing, right? Like, and I don't mean... I don't even mind meta, but it's it's weird because you're like... These are character-level characters dealing with something that's, that the player is playing, is, is actually solving. Mm-hmm. So, when I like... When I have those clues that are given out and whatnot, I prefer to let the character's knowledge be the thing that garners them the clues through dice rolls. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the thing that determines whether they're going to get uh, possible bonuses or penalties moving forward, right? Like, I mean, if you don't need the clue and you just kind of solve it, any of the clues, mm-hmm. then then you're just going to get the bonus that you're clever. Good job. Yeah. Um, if you need a clue, I prefer to let the characters use their abilities to garner those clues. Mm-hmm. Right. And then that that those roles there determine determine the thing that you were talking about whether they get uh, bonuses or negatives to the to the to the thing moving forward. Sure. Yeah. Um, that, that's the only uh, that's the only modification for for my design, which I think your design is perfectly fine too. I think it's really cool. Yeah, I, I think I think I do pretty much the same thing. I think I do what what you're talking about as kind of the middle stage. If they don't solve it right away, um, hey, with a history check, you know that uh, this sort of dragon in the mural uh, was often seen near the diamond mines of blank. Yeah. And oh, you, uh, there's the and diamond, rolled... there's the mural, boom, yes. Yeah, and because you rolled so high, you do it quickly. Right. Yeah, absolutely, yep. And then, yeah, then if they are completely way off on the puzzle, that's when you can introduce, you know, an NPC... Um, who might be with them can can give them clues, or you know you just break it right down to hey that ruby that you were going to put the the scratch patterns on it look like the scratch patterns on this part of the mural, right? You yeah, can, you've, take, you've taken enough time that you notice this thing now. Yep, like, exactly. Uh, so yeah, that's puzzles. Like I'm I'm with you. Yep. I, I think that if you're going to do them, that's the way to do them. Yep. In my I, in my opinion, yep. that's my opinion. So again, just make graded resolutions with mechanical or narrative benefits or drawbacks, um, rather than just a simple pass/fail uh, status for puzzles. Mm-hmm. Oh, let's talk about choices. Choices are a thing. Yes, choices—they're all about consequences, Chris. They are, in fact, all about consequences because whatever you choose will have some sort of impact on the story going forward. Because that's the thing about choices. Like, we make choices constantly in role-playing games, right? Like, we choose to do this or we choose to do that. But there are moments in games where those choices seem to have a much bigger impact on what's going to happen going forward. Mm -hmm. So if you've ever played a video game or you've ever read a choose-your-own-adventure novel, then you know exactly what we're going to be talking about, which is like, well, you have several options that seem to be reasonable, Mm-hmm. And you have to make a choice based on on some of those some of those options, and then there will be fallout and success for some of that. Now, of course, there'll be the people that want to figure out a way to get around that in mm-hmm. some way, shape, or for, form, and they come up with an idea that will allow for that. But it's not easy, and that's when you start introducing die rolls. Yep. You're like, sure, make your check, and then you can do the thing. But if you don't, well, then you're getting the failure state in probably a worse way. Mm-hmm. And, and the and the negative consequence exactly, maybe one both thing, of them. Yeah, sure. One thing to keep in mind with choices is, as Chris said, you know, you may think you're putting putting a you know, you can go this way, this way, or this way with your choice. Always be prepared for characters to try to do all of the above. If you're talking about the path, like you you find the note that says, "I'm going to kill uh, the queen." the bishop, and the guildmaster. Who are you going to save? And you might think, okay, everyone's going to pick a pick one and they will all go that direction. And then they all split up to to take on all three challenges. So, good luck. Yeah, well, good luck. But, you know, always keep that in mind. Always, this is why playtesting is so important. Think things through. When you're writing, then be the DM as you read it, going, okay. I'm DMing this. I could see this happening. Then be the player. Hey, if I was playing this, what would I do? I would try to do all three. Uh, so, you know, always carefully cogitate on the the consequences 
and make sure that the choices you're giving are what the players or the DM will uh, most likely think through. Yeah, some of my favorite things to do when when building these things up is to um, make it put people in in difficult situations where they can't where the the choice that they make does not there's not a there's not a right or a wrong right right so like you've had a relationship with an npc for a long time and um maybe several sessions and then you find out all of a sudden that they're not betraying you but they're doing something that is against what you think is against essentially your moral code but they have real reasons for doing it like maybe they're seeking revenge for a loved one who was killed Mm -hmm. but this is somebody that you care about a lot too and it's like, well, do you stop them in that moment when you have the chance? Um, or do you let them go and try to convince them that their path is wrong later? It's either one. And, and usually those are like, that's the choice, too, because if you don't stop, if you stop them there and now, like your friends or the town guard or whoever is going to kill them. Mm-hmm. Right. So, like, do you let this person get away to try to redeem them later or do you stop the problem now with the possibility of terrible things happening later because of this person running around? Mm-hmm. Like those are interesting choices to me. Those are those are and those are some severe consequences, uh, very personal consequences. Yeah, it, it's you know we talk about choices or, or uh, you know and, and the consequences for choices that you make, and over the years of running organized play, we would gather in various campaigns feedback on you know did the did the table did your table succeed? What did they do? And we would always put some of you know some moral or just plain what do you do choice in you know you you have the crown of valhalla do you give it to the mayor do you give it to the seamstress who needs it to save her family or do you keep you know all of these choices and 90 percent of the time the choice would be pretty obvious based on what the players did we would be lucky, you know, if you had four choices, we would be lucky if one of the choices wasn't 80% of the time the, the players did this. Once, and this is why I love Teos Abadia so much, once Teos created a scenario where you had a choice of what to do with this power, this power that, that had to be put somewhere, it could be put in a person. It could be spread out among various people, or you know, th- it was like a. Th- I think it was a three-level choice, and it was so great because when I looked at the survey at the end of of the adventures run, it was like thirty-five, thirty-four, thirty-three. Mm, that's perfect. Yeah, you know, it was. That's... It was like wow. This this choice really obviously resonated with people and it was something that they really thought about and it wasn't an obvious power gamer well we're just going to do this because you know it's min we're we're, we're min maxing our choice right mm-hmm. this is the maximum benefit for us with the minimum drawback so we're going to do it it was yeah. very nuanced and and i love that yeah they're not always easy to um design into games uh, they, I, I've never had a very easy time designing them into adventures because a lot of the adventures that I tend to write are short, and um, in my campaign play, they uh, end up being a lot, a lot, more, a lot easier for me because eventually you'll have a bunch of these strings to pull on, which mm-hmm. is why probably in an organized campaign where you can assume some of these strings will be there later in the campaign, right. you can pull on them a little bit more effectively. Yeah, yeah, and you you just want to be careful with. One of the things that seems like a good idea and rarely is, is the choice of, you can do one of two things. One thing increases your character's power, but it's bad for other people. And one of them is good for other people, but you you either lose power or you fail to gain power that you could have. And you know, so it's sort of this m- moral choice of, do what's right versus do what's good for you power wise mm-hmm. and it it's just not great because it's it separates two types of gamers right usually the narrative type of folks are like it, it, assuming their characters you know are good they're going to do what's right um whereas if you do 
if you play with people that are all about their own character and gaining power and magic items and whatever, they're always going to do what's wrong, even if their characters are lawful good, right? And so it try to get more nuanced than that, if you can. I, I'm I'm with you, yeah. 100%. Um, we're running out of time. It's almost an hour. Okay. Uh, the, I guess the last. Yeah. We're talking about combining we, them real quick. Yeah, we can talk about combining them real quick. For me, we've talked about all of these challenges uh, and what their resolutions and consequences are. Combining the challenges in a way um, is where the best part of D&D adventure design lives. Right? So it's not about... Um, it's not just about the choice. It's about making the choice while you're fighting the monster. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not just about the the solving the puzzle. It's about solving the puzzle when you have the time limit of dealing with a trap. Yep. Uh, and then you can really make some nuanced uh, resolutions. You can give various options of, you know, do we kill the monster first and then make the choice? Or do we make the choice, even though we're going to have to leave the monsters alive and run away from them because of that choice? You know, all of these things come together to really make memorable um, challenges with consequences that can be very um, nuanced and ongoing in in terms of the story and in terms of mechanics. So if you, can, yeah, if, you can, if you can find ways to combine them, do that. Yep. that's the, the, I mean, there's some nuance that we can talk about combining them. Like I wouldn't try to put more than like two, maybe three of these things together in any way, shape, or form. Um, yep. After that, it gets a little too convoluted. Mm-hmm. Um, try to be clear uh, when you can with, uh, with, with where these things are coming from and how they kind of work together. That is, especially when you're explaining it to the to the dungeon master. That is, that is always the thing. Like mm-hmm. trying to explain what you're what you're trying to get across in your adventure is is important. And this is even more important. Yep. Like how do Sa- these sidebars are your friend? Sidebars are your friend, and how these things kind of work. Or like if you even have a section like what you're going for, or like the in, intent. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, side like we just said, sidebars are important because sidebars are a place where you can talk not about the actual design, but about your intent. Mm-hmm. You know, this is meant to test the players in this way, and these are the various sorts of resolutions and consequences I'm thinking about for your campaign as they make these decisions or succeed or fail on these with these challenges uh, as you run it. Absolutely. All right, we good. We're good. All right. That was really fun. I, uh, I think this is a really good topic. I'm yep. glad we took the time to, to take two weeks to talk about it. Exactly. <laughs> uh, let's do some Patreon shout-outs now. Since it's the first episode of the month, uh, we're going to do uh, the Royal Court, because that's what we do with the first episode of the month for these shows. Um, Eileen Barnes, the Duchess of Pandas Talking Games. Andrew Dacey, the Warden of Whiskies. Angie Olson, the Duke of Dice. Brian Kurtz, the Royal Doctor of Physic. Christopher Gray, the Spy Master of MMP. Craig Just Craig, the Lord of One Name. Donnie Harville, the Lord of the Slack Room. Eric Bontz, the Duke of Gators and the Lord of Beefness. GM Gerrymander, the Lord of the After Show. Jesse Edmond, our editor and the Royal Doctor. Uh, Jim Likes Games, the Royal Merchant. John C. LeMay, the Guard at the End of the World. John Carney, the Court Necromancer. Kevin Lovecraft, the Royal Beard. Merrick Blackman, the Royal D&D Reviewer. Mike Dinos, the Inquisitor of Mark. P.K. Sullivan, the Queen's Royal Rocketeer. Rob Abrazado, the Gauntlet of the Queen and our Chief. He pays us now, so thanks, Rob. Uh, Schmitty, the Keeper of the Labyrinth. Toby Sennett, the Baron of Britannia. Todd Crapper, the Prophet of Probability. Uh, Richard Wyatt, the Captain of the Royal Airship Fleet. And Jared Rasher, the Scribe of the MMP. That royal court keeps getting bigger and bigger. It does, and we love you. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of patrons, if you'd like to be a patron of Down with D&D, you can click on the link to our Patreon page on the website, and for uh, $2 a month, you can get yourself a shout-out. Or Not like that, because that's $10 a month, but for $2 true. a month, you can get a shout-out. Like, but, but if you want to split that difference, then for $4 a month, you get a shout-out like you just heard, but you also get to see our show notes, and you get access to our Slack room where you can talk with us or the other misdirected Mark folk whenever you so choose. Yeah, I think uh, Steve Bissonette just joined for 4 bucks, and he's like in there now so he can, talk, so he can chat with us. Hey, yeah. 
Yeah. Anyways, if you can't help us monetarily, but you want to give us a boost, you can do so with an Apple Podcast review. Those help even if you're not listening via Apple Podcasts, because other podcatchers use Apple Podcasts to rate and rank shows. So if you gave us a nice review, that would help make us more visible, and we'd appreciate it so much. Mm-hmm. Sean, where can we find you on the Internet? Uh, the best place to find me at the moment is on Twitter at Sean Merwin, although we do have some forums. There are forums, in fact. Come join the forums. It's forum.misdirectedmark.com. Yay. Come talk to us. Mm-hmm. How about you? Uh, Where you can, do you find you, Chris? Me, it's uh, at the light 101. That's my Twitter handle. But there's also the show and the network Twitter, which is uh, at Misdirected Mark. So mm-hmm. that's that's a place. Um, you can also just go to the website. And on the website, you can catch um, a bunch of other great shows. One of them is Bone, Stone, and Obsidian, where you can hear uh, Robert uh, Aducci and Wayne Chang talk about Dark Sun, all versions of Dark Sun, all kinds of Dark Sun. They usually put out their episodes monthly, and it's a it's a lot of uh, terrible, awful, sun-beating, murderous, sorcerer king fun. Yay. Misdirected Mark. Whoops. Try that again. Down with D&D is a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, buddy, what are we going to do now? We're going to go kill some monsters without consequence. Seems unlikely. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know me.